0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. I'm your host, Victor, and with this episode, we kick off our new season of the podcast, having just wrapped up a week that featured season finales of Yellow Jackets, the series finale of Ted Lasso and Barry on HBO, and of course, Succession as well, which has been our most popular recent coverage here on the podcast. Do track down all of those if you have not yet done so. With this kickoff of this new season, it's the summer. We have this incredible glut of content that comes through on April and May because of Emmy consideration deadlines. And now, honestly, TV ratings in general go down in the summer when people are busy with other activities. So most networks don't put their big premiere content out there. But of course, there's always something to watch or rewatch. So this is what we're looking forward to for June, things I'll be covering here in the podcast. In this very episode, of course, we're catching up with Apple TV Plus's popular sci-fi series, Silo, which is halfway done, and you'll get my catch-up of the season up until now, plus a breakdown of this most recent episode of the show, which just premiered today. Also a very controversial series, which will be premiering on HBO Max just this week, a show called The Idol, starring the pop star the weekend, based on a concept that he brought to the showrunners, and I honestly do not know if we're going to keep going week to week on that one, but I do have many things to say about him as an artist, artist I've been following from the very beginning of his career, when he was still an anonymous performer on the internet, and how he's changed the sound of contemporary R and B and merged it with alternative music, for example, but also this very toxic persona that he has inhabited throughout his entire career and his basically putting to rest with this series. So for all those reasons, it's interesting. And also the behind the scenes stories on this show have been very problematic. And I'll give you that context and my review of the first episode when it premieres on Sunday. So do expect to get that episode Sunday night or Monday morning. In that same episode, I will also be introducing a BBC series that has aired. The entire first season of this series has aired, and it was supposed to premiere back in January, and I do have a mini-review of it here in the feed. But now that it is available week to week, I may be covering it probably in the silo episodes, but since this will be busy enough today, I'll delay it till Sunday. Plus, the first episode does not premiere in the US anyway until Sunday. And that show is called The Lazarus Project. If you've seen the movie Tenet, it has some elements of that. And if you did enjoy that, You may very well enjoy this show as well. It's a very interesting show. It does explore this idea of time travel and explores the negative potentials of that in a way that doesn't often get covered in these movies and series and these works of fiction. So that's something to recommend it, although I have very mixed feelings about it. But if you're a fan of Silo, if you like science fiction in general, this show may very well appeal to you. And another reason to recommend it is season two, or series two, as they call it in Britain is about to premiere probably within the next month or two in the UK. So if you are in England, if you are overseas, you may very well have access to it pretty soon. So catch up on it now before then. So that's all coming this weekend. On top of that, a new series that I'm very interested in about a married couple that re-enlivens their marriage by exploring a string of murders in their social circle, and start a podcast so <laughs> something that i another overlapping theme with my life and also this show is actually based on a true crime and it's called based on a true story interestingly enough that will be premiering later this week i believe on thursday this upcoming thursday as does the crowded room on apple tv plus also based on a true story apple tv plus had a big hit last summer with blackbird another crime series based on a true story and trying to replicate it here with The Crowded Room, which will be going week to week. And we will definitely be covering it here in the podcast, whether we go week to week on it or we catch up on it every few weeks remains to be seen. But if you were planning to watch that, we'll be covering it here in a podcast. And if you have seen Blackbird or have not yet and are curious about that show, we do have recaps of it here in our feed as well. And then two weeks out from today, expect a podcast episode where we discuss the most recent season of Black Mirror. One of my favorite shows for the past decade or so, although the episode to episode has been very variable, but I'm okay with that with anthologies. I think that's you have to take that with anthologies, the good with the bad, as long as those highs are very high. And I got to say the last season, which was pretty short, three episodes only, I found kind of disappointing. I mean, more than a little disappointing, honestly, but I'm very curious to see this latest season, which will have five episodes and they all premiere at the same time, two weeks from today. And I will be recapping and reviewing them here on the podcast. And later in the month, we have The Bear, season two of The Bear, all available at once, just like season one was released as a binge and became a word of mouth phenomena last year. Everybody seemed to at some point be discussing The Bear. If you're catching up on The Bear season one just now, do check out our review in our backlog. But I will be watching the new season, once again, available all at once and discussing it here on the podcast. And that's coming out on June 22nd. And that same week, Secret Invasion, the new Marvel series. I have had many issues with the run of recent MCU films and series, but very much looking forward to this series. Sam Jackson returning to the MCU again. So as you can tell, this upcoming slate of things we're going to cover here in the podcast are very science fiction heavy. And that seems to be a pattern. There are other titles that I'm looking forward to in July, that I'll announce as they become more solidified on the calendar, which are also very heavy sci fi. So, we're going to become a sci fi series primarily (laughs) for the next month or two, perhaps. Speaking of sci fi, many of you who are listening to this probably started listening to the podcast because of the series, The Peripheral, and it has been renewed for season two. This actually happened back in February or March, I believe, but just announcing it here because I know many of you did watch that series. I had many issues with that series but may still watch season two since, for the most part, the plot has been laid out in that first series of shows. And maybe now, stuff can start happening. (laughs) Minor spoiler for my reaction to that series. And I bring that up, by the way, because I feel, as a preview of this overall episode, that Silo reminds me of that in the fact that we are setting up this world, a world I very much want to explore, and I feel at the halfway mark of the season, I've had a lot of setup, and I've had many things happen, by the way, to many characters, but I have no emotional attachment to those characters yet. And I feel similarly, as I did to the show The Peripheral, for all those reasons. I am way more vested in the mystery of Silo, honestly, just because of the way the show is being doled out. Because on the page, I feel like they haven't given me enough characterization of these characters. And I will see, I have not yet watched this most recent episode. We'll see, as I walk through the episode, if they have corrected some of these things this week. Uh, One more little piece of news. I'm recording this early Friday morning, and I've just seen the headline that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse had incredible previews last night. Its box office is within striking distance of this same weekend's opening of The Incredibles 2 some years back. And that film, importantly, is the highest grossing animated film ever in the United States which is very impressive. My daughter, for example, loves the first Spider-Verse movie, as do many, many people. I do. I love that film. And it was a modest success. I mean, in the context of a an experimental animated film, its nearly $400 million worldwide gross was impressive. And it had incredible legs. It opened pretty low, especially for a comic book themed film, but then legged out through the holidays and then won the Academy Award and eventually had nearly $400 million worldwide, and based on its budget, a solid hit, and yet a disappointment in the context of comic book movies. $400 million isn't that much, and definitely not for a Spider-Man movie. The non-animated, most recent Spider-Man movie made nearly $2 billion worldwide, a huge success, which leads us inevitably to a sequel to that film, of course, and it is not opening 20% bigger or 30% bigger within the first week of its release here in the US, maybe even within five or six days, it may very well eclipse the entire gross of the first film, which is to speak of just how much people love that film. I don't have an opinion of it yet. Is it better? Is it worse? I'm pretty sure it's going to be good, but is it going to be better or worse than the previous? I'll let you know sometime this weekend or next week because I'll be watching that film with my daughter. So most likely the thing that everyone will be talking about this week in popular entertainment, aside from probably many, many, many negative takes on the idol. And I may very well have one of those as well by the end of the weekend. So stay tuned for all of that. Okay. So Silo. So the origins of this series are pretty interesting. This is based on a series of originally short stories, but now consolidated into multiple novels written by the author Hugh Howey. And interestingly, he began writing these short stories. Some of them correlate very closely to these individual episodes of the series, by the way self-publishing them online, they became very successful. He made them available as inexpensive Kindle-only downloads via Kindle direct publishing, and eventually consolidated them into the first novel called Wool, which he then did sign a distribution deal with some publisher, Simon & Schuster, I believe, and has since not only consolidated the first set of short stories into the, a book called Wool, but has published two sequels as well, Shift and Dust. And actually, all the way back in 2012, basically when the first book, Wool, was compiled, he sold film rights. And it's been gestating for some 10 years now to finally be released as this series for Apple TV+. And the series runner is Graham Yost, who was the creator and executive producer of Justified. By the way, a new season of Justified is coming in July, something we will definitely be covering here in the podcast, one of my favorite series. And since then has been the executive producer of Falling Skies, for anybody who watched that series, The Americans, Sneaky Pete on Amazon, and is currently one of the executive producers on Slow Horses, another series we've covered here on the podcast, and began his career as a writer writing the excellent film Speed, classic at this point, and worked on some of those historical, excellent, honestly, historical series that Tom Hanks produced from The Earth to the Moon, Band of Brothers, and The Pacific, so, I am a fan of Yost in general. And that was a key selling point here for me to jump into this series. I oftentimes, I'm wary, I'd say, of these puzzle box type shows that are all wrapped around the mystery because the mystery has to be satisfying in the end. And you do have this scenario where, of course, these are pre existing books. So, they know the solutions to these mysteries, which may be one of the reasons that Apple has honestly been making so many of their series based on books. And I have also tried to not spoil myself on the mysteries of the silo. But I'd say a limitation of this type of filmmaking is that there seems to be this intention of rolling out the mystery slowly because they know the end point. And you really ask the, a lot of the audience to hang in there for what seems to be structurally multiple seasons before you get your big payoffs. And that still remains to be seen with this season of Silo. So this week's episode of Silo is episode six of a 10 episode season. <laughs> so we are now just past the midpoint of this show and it's called The Relic. But before we break down this episode, how have we gotten to this point? Let's go back to episode one and walk through briefly a synopsis of the series up until this point. Episode one of Silo is called Freedom Day. So we discover there is a entire society living within this silo, thousands of people living here, 140 some odd levels, I believe. Maybe a cast system, but definitely these levels correlate to different strata within the culture. Maybe not always class-based, but for example, all the way down at the bottom, we have mechanical. Keeps the lights on. It's the people who keep the engine running, this giant engine that generates electricity for the silo itself. And very briefly, I wish this was actually further explored, we see that there are levels where there are sprinklers, and this is where the food comes from. So there's an agricultural level as well. And we have the more clerical members of society, people who work within the government, people who work within the judiciary, near the upper levels. We see doctors, and then an agricultural level. We see a nursery, a level where the children are born. So spread out here. We don't know exactly if this is (laughs) formally structured this way. This is kind of just what we're seeing from the clues that they're provided over the course of the show. But obviously, this makes you think about how other films have metaphorically dealt with similar topics. Just to name a couple, The Metropolis, the silent film from the 1920s, seminal in this regard, where you have this upper class, which enjoys all the luxuries of society, although (laughs) there aren't that many luxuries in this society, and obscured... Down below is this nether world where people work and toil and struggle. A more recent example of this, the movie Snowpiercer, if you've seen that, where you have these levels of the train, these different train cars, and moving from one to the other, you see how there are these upper class, the people who kind of enjoy the fruits of the labor of the people in the more distant cars, with a military level, for example, to separate that one from the other. So this similar metaphor has been seen before in other entertainment. My immediate question was, why is it such a tedious task to just move between levels? You have to plan it days ahead of time sometimes if you're going to make a really, really big move from one level to the other, significant number of levels, I should say. And why? Why would this be the case? Obviously, mechanically, they could handle this. And it does get mentioned here once again, so I might save my thoughts on that to later. Over the course of the series, we also found out that there was a revolution. This is Freedom Day. It's a celebration of The end of this rebellion, which took place about 140 years ago. And there is very little known of what happened before. The general mythology of the place is that there was an uprising, and these rebels also destroyed the history, the whole history of the silo. And that's why there is so little known about what came before. And yet, if there are artifacts that come from that earlier period, you need to present them to the judiciary level so that they could be cataloged and usually confiscated. So of course, a mystery right there, if the rebels were the ones who apparently destroyed the previous history, then why would the current powers that be still require that earlier artifacts be destroyed or confiscated? And there is one main rule here in the silo. You can check out anytime you like and you can definitely leave and you are permanently checked out because everyone who goes outside to clean, quote unquote, dies. And what that cleaning means is that there is a view, a limited view of what's outside beyond the silo. There's a camera pointing a certain location. It projects these images onto screens inside on multiple levels. And over time, these get dirty. They get covered with dust, as you would expect, dirt and dust. And what they can see is this really desiccated, gray, and unappealing version of the outside world, as well as people who have gone out to clean before, and their bodies still visible to the viewers inside of the silo. And that camera gets cleaned off. If someone decides to exit, they go outside, clean off the lens, only to then perish. So why? Why would anyone ever clean? That's the question. And it's a theme that's explored here within the show. So our first temporary protagonist is Allison Becker, played by Rashida Jones in episode one. She's married to the sheriff, Holston Becker who's played by David Oyelowo. She works in IT. You'll see that everybody has some general silos in this organization that people work for. One of them is IT. We find out that pregnancy is regulated here within the silo and that she and the sheriff have tried to conceive previously. And she's getting older and she says, this is gonna be the last time they're gonna try. There's a vetting process or a lottery process and she waits every single day to get notification that they're allowed to try to have a child again. She meets this fertility counselor, Gloria, who she's very skeptical of to start. But this is the first time we see that there is some kind of resistance brewing within the silo itself. As you'd always expect in any kind of society, there are always going to be people who will be questioning the current power structure. Eventually, she does get permission to have another child. And she goes to the doctor to have a procedure where they remove this metallic capsule from inside of her, which prevents ovulation, I would assume. Later on, we find out that she's written an article that she's published just to reduce the calls to IT because people continuously ask for questions about how to restore files or repair files that they may have found on their devices. And her boss, Bernard Holland, comes over and speaks to her. This is played by Tim Robinson. I'm sorry, I mean Tim Robbins. Tim Robinson uh, also has a new show this week, but maybe I'll talk about that some other time. He says, I've already taken this article down. And next time you publish something like that, please do come to me first. There's a reason we have this process. So here's my first stop along the way of discussing different means of control, which is something that this series, and I assume this book series of books as well, is really trying to investigate. How do you control a population of people? There's a common goal to survive and to thrive, but then there are all these other contradictory impulses within that organization. So how do you control a population of people? Even as they're trapped in a silo together and literally cannot even move away, (laughs) you are stuck there together and you have to make this work. So interesting, like something so innocuous, just this article would raise an alarm with the powers that be. But then you think about it, if somebody is out there trying to restore these files, for some reason, maybe they have an artifact they shouldn't have. Maybe they are trying to hide something that they, some information. By making the IT call, that's another person that can be tracked, another person that can be surveilled. So even something this minimal actually is regulated to some extent. And we'll see more of that as the show progresses. And obviously, you think about controlling who can have children and when they can have children. Now, according to what we know so far, this would only be when you can have children, but it goes beyond that. Eventually, Allison becomes frustrated with the fact that they do not get pregnant and their deadline is coming to a close. And does go and speak to Gloria. And she says to her, do you think you're the type of person that they want to have children? And she mentions this to her husband who thinks she might be paranoid and maybe they should get a psych consult in there, but they decide against it. But of course, this brings up another point of how you control a population. They are deciding who can have children, who cannot. Now, does that mean that compliant folks get to have more children? Probably, because maybe there's a genetic component to how compliant you will be. But more importantly is that if you have compliant parents, then those compliant parents will probably raise compliant children. And even if the children have some rebellious streak, they will, for the most part, be concerned about embarrassing their parents or getting caught or being ratted out by their parents or the people who they surround themselves with. So if you're the right type of person, then of course they want more of your type of person in this society as a way to control and placate the population. Now, once again, the overall goal could be to have a peaceful population. That's a overall noble intent. But if the way you do it is by controlling everybody's decisions and everybody's movements, the question becomes, does life become worth living at that point? And not only that, but the more controlled you are, the more likely to foment a rebellion, creating more pressure within the system. Plus, a society always needs to have some kind of antagonistic, rebellious component. Imagine that a system, as it is, has a very appropriate set of components to maintain that system, but systems always fail at some point. And who picks up the pieces once a system has failed? It has to be someone who has envisioned an alternate system at that point. Allison gets an IT request from someone called George Wilkins. He's a programmer in the middle floors of this silo. And it turns out he's been looking forward to having her as his IT specialist. He had read her article and not only knew that she might be a specialist at this, but that maybe he found a kindred spirit, someone else with a questioning nature. He shows her a hard drive that he has. It's an off-the-books hard drive. There's no registration on its serial number. So how old is it? Hard to know until they can look at what's on it. And even though she's wary of all of this, she does start to try to discover the path orientation for the drive so that she can navigate those files. Allison does eventually crack the file structure on the device and finds a whole bunch of documents, some of them a schematic of the silo with what looks like an opening down below. And she's been caught up in this mystery, just trying to solve this puzzle and now has solved it and now starts to worry that this is definitely from before. So any mystery of that has been solved. And she knows how dangerous this can be at this point and she tells him to bury it. However, she does eventually return, and he shows her some of the other things that he's discovered, including a file of someone cleaning, and we see a green, lush outside world. Later, Allison's year is finally up to achieve a pregnancy, and she's utterly devastated and starts to have a kind of nervous breakdown. There's a lot going on here with this discovery of the drive. She starts to question more and more, and of course, yet again, having failed to become pregnant. It's time to reinsert that device who blocks her pregnancy and she misses the appointment. Her husband eventually meets up with her at the apartment. She's done surgery on herself and shows him that this is all a lie. The device was still inside of me. I don't know how she knew where to look. I hope she didn't look around too much (laughs) because that could be serious surgery required now but maybe with the assistance of that pregnancy specialist, she knew where to look. He runs out to get a doctor. I mean, obviously she's bleeding and returns to find out from Marnes, his deputy, that she's in the cafeteria yelling out her conspiracy theory. They try to talk her down. They try to calm her down. And then she finally says those fateful words, I want to go outside. We meet Jens, who is the mayor. And she's worried that they're just coming off of this celebration where she was worried that a rebellion might be fomenting and that might all come to a head. And now we're gonna have a cleaning for the first time in quite some time. And she wants everyone to be on high alert. Holston does go and interview George, knowing that his wife had met with him earlier. He covers for her, says she had never come back. And they do search his entire apartment and they do not find the hard drive. Towards the end of the episode, we see that Allison is preparing to exit the silo. She puts on a suit, meeting with her husband for a final time. She tells him she's very confident about what she believes. And she tells him, if the outside is a barren wasteland, I will not clean the camera. But if it's green, like I think it is, she suspects that they're showing an artificial view of the outside world to the people inside, then she will clean the camera. This is like the World Cup final. This is everybody's turning up for this. And all over the silo, everybody's watching their screens. She exits in this protective suit and she cleans. She walks up to the camera, she cleans it off, and she smiles. And her husband smiles to himself as well. But then she walks towards the nearest crest of a hill and we see her falter and then collapse, just like all the others before her. And our first protagonist, this won't be the last time, by the way, dies. There's been a wraparound story here for this episode. where two years after the events here. George Wilkins now has died. He went over one of the railings here at the silo, a popular form of suicide considering how vast that central space within the giant staircases is. Holston, meanwhile, meets with a deputy on one of the lowest floors and mentions that one of his engineers is saying that George was murdered. It was not a suicide. This is Juliet Nichols, played by Rebecca Ferguson, who's the lead engineer, maintaining this giant gyroscopic engine running. And relatively soon after this, Holston tells his deputy that he wants to go outside. He wants to see his wife, Mentions that he's going to finally start listening to Allison. But he's prepared a few things around his office, some clues that don't pay off until later episodes. And that's the end of episode one. So the idea of the cleaning, this is interesting. Obviously, there is a mystery here, one of the mysteries in the show as to why people clean, and it is another mechanism of control as well. So on the one hand, they have to be presented with something that would motivate them to clean the lens, and we'll find out more in episode two. Of course, it's a mechanism to clean the lens. So it's a way to get people to clean the lens. And in a way, once again, going back to the more fundamental ideas of the show, it's another mechanism of control because what you can allow people to do is, hey, you can check out anytime you like, just like Hotel California, but you never really leave. And you can imagine that if you have a rebellious streak, you could just tell them, hey, hey, look, you can leave anytime you want. I understand you're not happy with the way things are. I know you have a lot of questions, but hey, you can go. You can go if you need to knowing full well that they have this fate ahead of them. And not only that, imagine that you are one of these rebellious leaders and you have a little circle of folks who follow you and believe you and trust you. And then guess what? You're the guy who goes out and cleans or woman who goes out and cleans. And then you die right on camera, which of course would make your followers, doesn't change what they believe, but it does make them much more hesitant to propagate their ideas or to ask to leave for sure. So once again, it becomes another mechanism of controlling these people. And the question of course becomes, is this all a lie? And there's a whole world (laughs) beyond this silo. And this is just some cult experiment that someone has created. Uh, Is the world outside actually toxic? Of course, we need to know that. And if it's not, then why would these people be living inside the silo? Who put them there in the first place? As far as we know, nobody who lives there. And that could be a lie also, by the way. Maybe there wasn't a revolution 140 years ago. Okay. Episode two is Holston's pick. Holston meets with the mayor. This is tradition before you go out to clean. Just to be clear, it's been two years now since his wife's death. So it's not like this is happening a week later. We see him head outside. We see what he sees. He sees a beautiful blue sky outside. He wants to clean. He wants people to see what he sees. But of course, that's kind of naive because he knows what you see when you get a cleaning. (laughs) You see a big old ugly gray sky. And he starts to walk in the same direction as his wife. Her body's still there. And he starts to collapse, just like everybody else has previous. He decides to take off his helmet and people freak out. No one's ever done this before. No one's ever taken their helmet off, which I find strange because if I was about to collapse and I've seen other people collapse, I could be thinking, well, maybe they're putting some poison in the suit. Let me take this suit off ASAP, especially if I see a nice, beautiful green and blue world outside. But any expectation that it's the suit that's killing people, he pops off that helmet and he also dies and collapses right next to his wife's body. Another potential protagonist on the show, now dead. Two episodes in, two deaths. It's like a slasher movie. Juliet has witnessed this, and she is furious, calling him a liar. The assumption here, of course, is that he has been telling her that there is another world out there, and that he believed in his wife. Now he's convinced as well, and almost had her fooled in in her estimation, and angrily storms off. We see that things start getting violent within the silo, at least down in the mechanical level, people are able to keep themselves together. Knox, who, turned out, who turns out to have been the lead engineer who Juliet started to shadow all the way back when she was a teenager, gives a speech that calms everybody down, basically saying, we're the ones who have to keep the lights on. So let them talk about politics. Let them talk about philosophy up top. We have work to do. And there's a philo- philosophical alignment to this as well. It's the old school Idle hands are the devil's work. If you keep yourself busy, you don't have time to think about these other esoteric questions about freedom and free choice and your own personal fulfillment. And of course, they're right. If they are going to spend their whole entire lives blinders on, doing nothing but keeping the lights on, keeping the lights on is the most important thing you can do in that silo. Without food, without electricity, people will starve. People will turn on each other. So they have a very, very important work to do, which I'm sure makes them very fulfilled in their own way. Holston had written a letter and left his badge in an envelope at the end of the previous episode. Marnes, his deputy, has found it. Sam Marnes, by the way, is played by Will Patton, a very well-known character actor. You've just seen him in those three most recent Halloween films and in many, many other places. (laughs) In Outer Range, (laughs) if you've seen that recently, very entertaining he is in that show. The letter that Holston left behind mentions that he wants Juliet to be his replacement. In flashback, we see Juliet, Nichols, and Holston together. She's telling him that she's confident George did not kill himself. Doesn't come clean about everything, because obviously she's talking to a sheriff. But she knows, one, she was in a relationship with George, and she would have known, she thinks, if he was suicidal or not. And two, he had just found the thing he supposedly was looking for this whole entire time. It would seem a very unlikely time for him to go and try to kill himself. She takes the sheriff to this door in the lowest level of the silo. There's this immense cavern here, truly impressive visual effects here. And there's a giant machine dangling down underneath them, presumably the drill that excavated the silo itself. He's been collecting things, things that are potentially dangerous. He has a tendency to collect things from anybody he can. And some of these artifacts are truly off-limits And he has collected them here, and she knows how to find them because she's been down there with him before. He has hidden a fish line, fishing line, and you can pull it up and pull it out of the dirt, this lunchbox, which has some of these artifacts in them. One of them is this hard drive. The sheriff takes the hard drive and a notebook, which has not only George's handwriting on it, but some other handwriting that Juliet does not recognize, But Holston does, recognizes it as Allison's handwriting. These are the notes she was taking when she was trying to discover the file paths on the hard drive. Meanwhile, we see the deputy and the mayor reflecting on this decision to select Nichols. The mayor decides she wants to meet her in person before making the decision, which means the descent of the full 144 levels of the silo. And she's an older woman, to be clear. After the sheriff dies, Juliet does decide to make another trip down to that lower level. George had accumulated just enough rope, a a long amount of rope, and she drops it down from this very scary girder that extends over the cavern. And she starts to descend down that rope, at one point losing her grip, sliding down and just catching herself when she gets to the bottom. She drops her flashlight and down at the bottom, she finds a massive amount of water. You do have to imagine this will be truly terrifying if you put yourself in the perspective of someone who has probably never seen more than a tub full of water, now being confronted with this huge amount of water. She has not been to the ocean, by the way, people. <laughs> These people have never seen anything outside that island, So she is truly terrified by this expanse of water. And she uh, is angry at herself later for being frightened by it, but hey, <laughs> I'd be scared too. And that's the end of the second episode. A few more points here. We meet Martha Walker, who's a close confidant of Juliet. She's another one of these older, hippie-ish women who seem to be subversively the heart of this, maybe an older rebellion. We also meet Robert Sims, who's played by Common, who's the head of security for judicial within Silo. And once again, to the idea of the elements of control here, not only is parenthood governed, but even relationships have to be sanctioned or not. Obviously, people can inevitably hook up behind someone's back. I mean, it just happens all the time. But just that, once again, being able to openly have a relationship with somebody only if sanctioned speaks to the fact that Holston and Alison being a couple, for example, Alison may have a rebellious streak. They may have identified this at some point. And they put her with Holston, who's someone who's law-abiding, a rule follower, and maybe they become a balance for each other. Okay, these recaps get shorter now. <laughs> You'll see. There's less plot as we go forward. Maybe not with this week's episode, but we'll see. Episode three is called Machines. We start off Juliet's dangling over that water again. Judicial is not happy with this choice for the sheriff, and they have their own candidate. The mayor wants to at least have a conversation and definitely would rather not give in to Judicial. That in and of itself motivates her to go and try to meet with Juliet. And then Marnes and Jans start their long descent down from the top level to the bottom. At one point, she intentionally stops to drink water right in front of Judicial and does not visit. She also stops at the nursery on the way down where she meets Juliet's dad, who's one of the doctors. She asks him for, for his assessment of his daughter. This is Ian Glens from Game of Thrones, by the way, playing Peter Nichols. And she basically says good things about her, but then admits that they've been alienated for about 20 years. She ha- he hasn't seen her. We find out later that her brother and her mother have both passed away. And she blames her father to some extent for this. When they finally arrive at the bottom, they meet Juliet, and she does not want the job. But while she's down there, she does meet with Martha. It turns out Martha and the mayor go way back. We also discover on the way down, by the way, that the mayor is very popular. The people line up to see her. And again, you think about mechanisms of control. The judiciary might be pulling all the strings behind the scenes, but it's good to have a mayor who's popular because it makes the people's voices feel heard. So you have to give the populace, someone they can vote for, and you have to give them someone who at least has the appearance that they're making their own decisions while you secretly control what's actually happening behind the scenes. Despite rejecting the offer, Juliet does look at the envelope that Holston left for her, and she finds his badge inside, and carved into the back is the word truth. Back when they were in that cavern together, Juliet had confronted Holston and said to him, I want you to find out the truth. I want you to do your job. And he says, it is my job to preserve the peace within the silo. So yet another philosophical digression here. Very interesting to consider this point that's being made. What is his job? On paper, it is to solve the crime. But if solving the crime creates chaos within the silo, isn't the broader goal to have peace within the silo. So there is a battle here within these different philosophical perspectives that it is better to control the narrative to offer up a suspect or change the story of what actually happened if it preserves the status quo. And then alternately, knowing the truth, of course, should be the ideal, but can it be dangerous in the wrong circumstances? Well, it appears that Holston has discovered the truth and is asking Juliet to complete His investigation. Now, why he couldn't unravel the truth, why he turned to her rather than Marnes, for example, someone he seemed to trust, TBD. So, with this truth signifier, she decides to, yes, I will take that job after all, (laughs) chasing after the mayor as she's exiting. However, she needs a favor. She needs to fix the generator once and for all. As I mentioned before, it's this giant gyroscope. And like a gyroscope, it starts to get a little wobble in it. That wobble can increase over time. They are counterweighing it the other way to resolve the wobble. But of course, that just means that the wobble now will go the other way, but in an even more pronounced way. And they go back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, the wobble will be so extreme, it'll destroy the entire generator. And of course, as often is the case, even though that's an inevitable failure that will happen at some point, it is better to not address it and just keep it operational as is rather than deal with a full fix. So given all that, she says, we're going to have to shut the thing down. I will not leave this generator unless we fix it the right way. And they okay this temporary shutdown of the generator. This is a very stressful time. You can imagine this anniversary just came up. And then on top of that, the sheriff has decided to go clean. And now they're going to have a, an outage for an extended period of time. If things are relatively status quo on this giant ship They are dodging icebergs left and right at this point. They do, of course, (laughs) solve the problem. It would have been funny if somehow, as I'm watching it, I'm thinking like, there's no way that this doesn't go their way, of course. She's not going to die. I don't think anyway, (laughs) although they kill a lot of people off on the show and the silo can't be blacked out because there's still a bunch of episodes yet to come. But I was thinking in my head how funny it would be if there was this blackout and then (laughs) what is the rest of the show going to play out in the dark? (laughs) Maybe it'll be just one week as the whole society collapses. But of course, but of course. That is not what's happening here. They successfully solve the issue. And even though this is a completely foregone conclusion, as I mentioned, this is a pretty well-executed sequence. On the way back up, the mayor stops in front of judicial one more time and insults them again, taking another sip of water right in front. And that night, Marnes and Jans prepare to celebrate. And he says he's going to retire soon. She says she's not going to go for re-election. And they start contemplating a very late in life romance. And just as they're about to open up that bottle to celebrate, the mayor collapses, she's been poisoned, and dies. Three episodes and four deaths, if you include George, four deaths so far among the central cast. Episode number four, it's the first day on the job and Juliet wants that file on George's death. Her assistant really doesn't like her. Marnes is completely heartbroken after the death of Jan's Juliet asks for his assistance, if you help me solve George's murder, and I think it's a murder, I'm going to help you solve Jan's quid pro quo. By the end of the episode, Juliet has found the file that Holston had hidden inside the vent using the fish line technique. We saw him actually putting it in place in the very opening scene of this whole entire series, but it doesn't pay off until now. And Marnes, who has been investigating the murder drunkenly, gets attacked in his apartment. That's it. That's episode four. (laughs) (laughs) A few other things here, actually. There's a lot of backstory on Juliet. We still don't know all the details, but we do know that the mother and brother died. And after that, her dad disappeared into his work, and she basically had to take care of herself. In those flashbacks, we see how she first met Martha, who worked in recycling. And she explains to her some of the rules of the recycling, how some artifacts that they can't confirm were from before the rebellion need to be turned in while others are recycled for reuse because, of course, technology is rare and important here in this world. And we see how she eventually becomes the shadow of the current lead engineer and how she got into that role herself. Her dad does go to retrieve her. She apparently forged his signature on this letter. But when he sees that she enjoys herself there more, she always was a tinkerer, he decides to leave her there. And I guess that's when the last time he saw her. In the present time of the episode, we also find out that Martha has continued investigate this artifact, which we know is a video recorder. And this is an artifact that came from George's collection, and she had given it to Martha as a goodbye present, basically, when she decided to take the sheriff position. Important for the next episode, Judicial had provided to Marnes a list of people that would want to kill Marnes, that he had arrested recently, with the assumption that the rat poison was actually for him, although that's an open question as to whether they were trying to kill him or trying to kill the mayor. And Juliet is looking for the hard drive, as well as those notes that had Allison's signature on it, which the sheriff had confiscated from her earlier and has had no luck yet. But the big thing here, obviously, is that Marge looks like he's about to be killed. And indeed, he gets killed. Another one bites the dust. It's the another one bites the dust counter on this show. <laughs> and that leads us to episode five, The Janitor's Boy. In last week's episode, The Janitor's Boy, Juliet finds out that Marge is dead and has made no progress in the investigation of George's death. Judicial couldn't get the sheriff they wanted, but they can get the chief deputy that they want because there's now a vacancy. And this is Billings. Suddenly, this assistant who couldn't stand her is suddenly motivated to partner with Juliet because she wants to know who killed Marnes. And Juliet also finds a list of names that was provided to Marnes on his body, suspects that judiciary had pointed him towards. Bernard, Juliet, Sims, and Billings compare notes. Juliet's the first one to bring up the fact that they can make a story revealing the relationship between the mayor and Marnes. Bernard likes this, even though it's unsanctioned, the relationship. They're older. They can't procreate anymore, obviously. And this romantic story of how they died of natural causes could cover up this murder and now multiple murders in a very short period of time. So Juliet is working her way into Bernard's good graces. And despite not liking her at the beginning, she stole some duct tape that was <laughs> supposedly earmarked for IT. He's starting to warm to her, or at least sees her as a useful partner. He also mentions they should have a race. He's the interim mayor and decides to have a race up the stairs in her, the mayor's honor. Another distraction. When they're one-on-one, Juliet obviously is irritated by the interventions by judiciary and Bernard mentions to her that according to the pact, you really have to do what they tell you to do. Juliet investigates this list of names. And when she gets to the second suspect, Patrick Kennedy, she finds evidence, rat poison, and a sketch from Martin's apartment. But the apartment is empty. And she hears on the street that he hasn't lived there for a while, apparently having moved out when his wife died. Billings goes and gives an update to judicial, but then tells Juliet about it and asks her, do you trust me yet? She says, no. (laughs) Now, I'm really confused by what happens next. Billings reports to Juliet that there's a suspect called Ralph Melby. Juliet has already taken Patrick Kennedy into protective custody, probably afraid that he might get executed also if this is some part of a cover-up. She announces she's looking for Kennedy, not Melby. And then we have this character, Trumbull, trying to become Sims's shadow. And once again, after Juliet announces that they're going after Kennedy. She shows up at the apartment where she originally found the planted evidence, where Kennedy no longer lives. However, Trumbull shows up to retrieve the planted evidence, and she's there and calls him out saying, well, you know what? He doesn't live here anymore. This all seems really confusing and convoluted, and I'm not sure why they made it this complicated to me. First of all, I'm not sure how this played out, and maybe I'm wrong, so please email me if you have an explanation to what's happening right here. But long story short, she catches Trumbull red-handed and of course he is closely affiliated to Sims, which exposes Sims as well. She chases him and this is while this race is happening in honor of the mayor. So there are witnesses to this chase and eventually he tries to throw her over the ledge. But of course she has a death grip, (laughs) grip of steel from working down in mechanical all those years and she's able to break his finger. He runs off, and some of these bystanders who are watching the race pull her up over the lip of the abyss. Sims and Trumbull meet up. He comes out of this janitor's door somewhere nondescript. Apparently, these doors are everywhere, and he has this very interesting bit of dialogue saying that when he was growing up, his dad was a janitor, and he was always kind of ashamed of it. I mean, someone had to do the work, but he deep down inside felt that his dad was doing menial work. And then... He got the job he has now, and now he knows what's actually happening beyond those doors. He seems completely shook by having this conversation, by reliving this experience, and by doing what he probably has to do next. He seems pretty fanatical. makes me very curious to know what is going on beyond those doors. And he says, yes, Trumbull had screwed up. It does draw a line back to him potentially. It puts the mission, whatever that happens to be, at risk. But they still are committed to make him his shadow. And he asks him, is he committed to do what he needs to do to protect the silo? And Trouble says, yes. And Sims shoves him off the edge (laughs) to his death. Another one bites the dust, although we barely knew this guy. So (laughs) not as surprising that we kill off a main character this quickly. Juliet and Billings go to judicial and meet with Sims. And I think we meet Judge Meadows here for the first time. She's been defined as an antagonist to the mayor, for example, a sometimes ally, sometimes contentious relationship with IT as well. And the story they come up with is that Trumbull tried to frame Kennedy for the murder. And when he was caught, he committed suicide. Now, why? <laughs> Honestly, she doesn't seem to care, the judge. She just thinks that she wants a convenient story that ends all this conspiratorial whispering. And this story works for her. Sandy is happy to know that there's a resolution to Barnes' murder. And she had asked Juliet earlier on to solve it, this is the assistant, and to not trust the suspects that she was directed to by Judge Meadows. I'm surprised they didn't kill Sandy off. <laughs> they let her survive. <laughs> Maybe she'll die in the next episode. Who knows? Sandy also mentions here that she feels like she's being watched. Juliet decides to take a couple of days off <laughs> after just being on the job for a few days, but she has already solved a murder. She needs to retrieve some belongings and she wants to say her farewells. We see her run into a character called Lucas, by the way, in one of the observation rooms. He'll be back. He mentions to her that he's seen these lights in the sky now that there's been this recent cleaning, and they seem to be moving in a circular pattern, or rather, they seem to be moving in a circular pattern. They don't even know what stars are. And at the end of the episode, she meets with Martha once again. Martha has figured out that the device left behind has a lens and does wonder why the pact specifies certain technological limitations. First of all, no magnification beyond a certain point. I'm not sure how that plays out unless... They're afraid that with a strong enough lens, they could see other civilizations out beyond their purview, possibly. But more strangely is the fact that they cannot have any technology that helps them go up and down the silo. Relatively easy to build. You could imagine having an elevator and just using counterweight, you could have a certain number of people on one side or the other. You put in slightly more weight on the descending elevator versus the ascending and then vice versa. (laughs) You could just run it on a schedule. It wouldn't be like elevators we have here, but it would be pretty effective considering their current technology of walking up and down the stairs, which takes days. Maybe this is intentionally another mechanism of control. By having this distance between people, you need to settle into a certain level and then stay there. Maybe this is a metaphor for how our society works, but also just from a point of view of controlling people. Maybe it's too easy to organize if you're able to move up and down that hierarchy too quickly, and maybe being too close to or visiting the upper regions too frequently would make these lower level people aspire too much and may foment more rebellion, and vice versa. Maybe having people making decisions at the top and too aware of the toiling beneath them might give them a conscience that maybe in some ways not useful to the powers that be. And it still remains to be seen as to who the powers that be really are. And I'll get to that with my final thoughts when we get through this recap of the most recent episode. Okay, here we have arrived, the current week's episode called The Relic. We see multiple flashbacks here in this episode of Juliet with George, and we have a feeling for the person she was before. She seemed a little lighter and an understanding of their attraction. Juliet also has a surprising number of tattoos. Juliet and the deputy, Billings, go and investigate Trumbull's apartment. Conveniently enough, the supervisor's unable to find the key to open the door. All the electricity's been turned off for the apartment. He can't explain why, of course. These are all just barriers to investigation. She just grabs a crowbar and pops the door open, which I'm sure is not part of the pact. In those flashback sequences, we also find out that George was the one who helped her steal the duct tape. A relatively small plot point, but I bring it up because we have another philosophical discourse here. She committed a crime supposedly. And he says, well, I do the same thing when I keep these relics. But she says, I'm doing it for the greater good. You're doing it because you just want these baubles. And these things are unimportant. So why risk his life? And George says, well, if they're not important, then why can't I have them? Good point, George. This is the time when George gives her the watch, which she eventually repairs by the end of the episode. Interesting that she continues to wear this watch, by the way. It actually turns out to be useful here multiple times in this episode and yet seems to be strategically not the right thing to do, (laughs) but it does help her out. Another holiday at the silo, by the way, this is forgiveness day and you're supposed to use your time to reconnect with loved ones and seek forgiveness for not having visited in a while, for example, or any kind of wrongdoings in the past. Juliet is still trying to find that hard drive. She cannot find it by searching the police database. Now I'm a little confused again (laughs) by this show. Not sure why these things are ambiguous. Juliet has had this Pez dispenser that she's been playing with in the flashbacks and also I believe we've seen it down in the lower level and we find it now inside of Trumbull's apartment. Billings even accuses her after the fact when they're alone that she's planted it there but that seems unlikely considering they had to break the door open. She didn't have the key to the place. So it seems that Trumbull had gotten this from her somehow. This should be something that should make her worried that someone's been seeing what she's been doing. But did she plan it? Again, I think I'm confused by this. They're making some of these things mysterious that probably aren't intended to be. She's been searching, meanwhile, for this hard drive, and she's been sitting on this artifact now. And apparently, after a certain number of hours, you have to ask permission from judiciary to keep something that you think is essential to an investigation. So Juliet and Billings go meet with Sims and Judge Meadows. The judge seems very strange here. She doesn't feel well. She wants to have the meeting cut short and also seems to be deferential to Sims when he speaks up. So is he really pulling the strings here? Possibly. Juliet mentions that they have this relic and wants to use it as part of their investigation, saying that it belonged to Trumbull. Sims calls out the fact that Juliet's wearing an artifact. He knows about all the artifacts that are not in the police database. They have a much more thorough archive. He does eventually track down the history of this artifact, which was last associated with George Wilkins. Despite all this antagonism, Sims likes the idea of opening a relics investigation and letting people return items without legal recourse. But of course, he adds that, observe them, make sure we keep a record of every artifact they turn in and who they are. Just another way to use this amnesty to track their actions. With this investigation open to track down relics, they use that as an excuse to go speak to Patrick Kennedy yes yet again. He is unappreciative of the protection he got last time. She needs him to give a name of who is his supplier for the relics. Kennedy says, You're putting me out of business if anybody knows I'm talking to you. And they're like, if we keep talking to you, they're gonna assume you're talking anyway. He does finally give them a name, and that person is Regina Jackson. When they go interview her, Regina recognizes the watch right away. That's the watch of my ex-boyfriend and Juliet finds out more than she wanted to, George used Regina to buy relics, hiding it in the fact that she had a large family, so they could be considered gifts that she would buy for her relatives. She feels used by George and actually didn't even know that he was dead, but now feels pretty confident that she knows who he left her for. And hints at the fact that he was probably using his relationship with Juliet to solve some of these big mysteries. He always was talking about those big mysteries. Apparently, conversation he had with Juliet as well over time. Regina also explains that she has already gone over this many times before with Judicial. So of course, this is the reason that Patrick gave her name to the investigators. They already had it. Judicial already had spoken to this person. Sims wants a meeting with the investigators along with Bernard Holland. He throws in their face that this artifact was from George's collection and had been reported by a confidential informant. Of course, that was Regina. So Regina had been speaking behind his back, maybe vengefully after the breakup. So how did this artifact turn up in that apartment? And by the way, you know what else is something that was originally in George's possession? That watch on your wrist lady, that watch gets her in trouble over and over again. She still keeps it on. And Bernard, who sees her as a potential ally, or at least a useful tool covers for her and says, isn't it just possible that it's just a toy or a knickknack? If Trumbull was part of that search team in George's apartment, maybe he just picked it up. It's just something curious and he put it in his pocket just for fun. Sims doesn't like this theory and also doesn't like the revelation that Trumbull was part of that investigation team. And he says, regardless, some mysteries better left unsolved. Later, Juliet's with Billings, And of course, she's fully aware that Billings understands the relationship that existed between her and George, given the very uncomfortable conversation they had back with Regina. And she's glad he didn't reveal that information, but he's just angry at her because legitimately, she did just throw him under the bus saying, well, he gave it to me. I I didn't have that. He thinks that she might've set him up. I don't see how she could have planted that. I don't think she set him up, which would be pretty cruel. (laughs) And he does accuse her of that. And now I think to myself, if indeed she planted it there, then why? What was the purpose in, well, I guess because then she can go after this artifact investigation. So maybe that was the plan. Maybe she did plant this somehow. Maybe she had the key and that's why he couldn't find it. So maybe there's less of a conspiracy going on and maybe she's the conspirator here. She had the key, opened the door, planted the evidence, and then made it look like, well, I couldn't have done it. Look, I have to bust this door open with a crowbar. So yes, maybe. He says, I could have gotten to a lot of trouble for that. And I have a family. I have a wife. I have a baby. And she goes, oh, you want honesty? What about you? You're suffering from the syndrome. I saw the symptoms. This is the second episode in a row now where we have this idea of a syndrome that apparently some of the people in the silo have. This gets to him. We see later that start having these tremors that are indicative of this syndrome. Apparently, there's some home remedy that people try but he was not able to take his pills over the course of the day or his treatment over the course of the day because he was in her presence the entire time. And of course, she mentions that if he has a syndrome, he's not even supposed to even be in a position of power. So what he's doing is illegal every single day. So he has no right to be calling her out. Now, by the end of this episode, we find out that everything that everybody's doing is being monitored. As I was questioning myself. I was thinking, well, these people have these conversations and they're running water or whatever. Supposedly, just that running water somehow masks their conversations. And I was wondering, like, is that true? Like, aren't they just being monitored? And I, I wasn't even thinking about video. I was just thinking about audio. Aren't they just being monitored? This really much makes me think about what happened in Germany, where people were allowed to believe that they weren't being surveilled constantly, and that these little simple things could protect them from their surveillance when they were absolutely being surveilled all the time. And just giving them that idea that they actually could mask their actions was a way of placating them, right? Of keeping things relatively under control. So it goes back to this idea, in the end, you can't control everybody's actions minute to minute. So you have to kind of allow them to feel like they are rebels. They do have some degree of free will. And honestly, they're all being watched all the time. And that any time, their actions can be quashed. Some other key things happen here as we approach the end. Juliet goes to the cafeteria again. We see Lucas yet again. This is going to be potentially a spy, honestly, but at the moment being played out as a love interest. He said, I heard the clouds were going to be out today, so I wouldn't be able to see the sky, but I still came because I wanted to see you. She kind of rolls her eyes at this, but you can see that she is getting charmed. Meanwhile, Billings has returned to his family. And going back to the idea that everyone's being surveilled, they certainly know he has this condition, and yet they're allowing him to have this job, which is against the pact. And it makes me think about this pact, which obviously I don't know all the bylaws there. As a matter of fact, Juliet makes a joke earlier that you could really much just rip all the other rules out and just say, you have to go to judiciary for everything. <laughs> One rule all the time. But it does make me wonder that if you have so many different rules around so many like different behaviors maybe someone's an addict. Maybe somebody has negative thoughts about the government. Maybe somebody has this syndrome. Maybe somebody does some minor criminal activity to make ends meet. With so many rules that exclude you from being a member of society, everybody at some point is a criminal, which just makes it easier to control, right? Because at any time, you can be in the in-group because your infraction is so relatively minor. But at any time, someone can say, do you want to lose this all? Because I can take it all away from you. You've broken rule A, B, and C. And considering what we discover here, that they're all being surveilled constantly, it appears to be that that is just another way, this pact, just yet another way to try to keep them in line and to give them a convenient rule book to say at any time, somebody at some point in their existence has got to have committed at least one of these infractions. Also, we get another flashback where Juliet and George are together. Juliet asks George, what is the biggest lie? He asks some questions. What's outside the silo? What's beyond the sensors that they have? Who built the silo? Why are they there? But the biggest one is, what if everything you believe, everything you know to be true is a lie? There's also another tender moment somewhere in here where she has fixed the watch and given it back to him. And he asked her, why does she care? And she had earlier said that she doesn't have time. She's too busy with work to be thinking about these big thoughts that he has all the time. And yet she's attracted to his sense of curiosity, his ceaseless fascination with these mysteries, because it gives him a life force that she doesn't see in other people, which I think is what makes that opposite attracts concept true. You see other people get fired up around things that are invisible to you. And that is something that could be very attractive. That night we see Juliet is out and about. She's on this walkie-talkie the greatest walkie-talkie ever (laughs) that can transmit through thousands of feet of concrete. And she talks to Martha saying that the person she was investigating didn't turn out to be the person she thought he was. She has not solved George's murder, but she's ready to go back down to mechanical. And she calls her out saying, you just did this for him? Weren't you doing this for yourself? After all, he's already dead. So is that why you were doing this? You need a better reason to quit. This conversation's happening late at night. And Juliet also goes and visits Regina again she calls her out saying, you know what? I know that you were the source around those relics to judicial. And that's probably the reason George is dead. Regina turns on a fan and says, it's not judicial. It's the man that comes in the middle of the night. He threatens everything she has, her family. He appears at the foot of her bed and he knows everything she did that day. They were going to send her family to work in the mines. It turns out Regina was the source of that hard drive, although it's still missing at this moment. And kind of shitty, that George may very well have disappeared once she gave it to him. Regina decides to give Juliet something that's been passed down her family line for generations. It's everything, she warns her. Apparently, they've tossed her apartment many times and have never found it. They toss the mattress, but they don't look inside the mattress. She says, do not speak it out loud. Just look at it. Juliet takes it with her, and it turns out to be a travel guide for Georgia. It's a kid's book, and it's full of pictures. Beautiful pictures of forests, dolphins, dolphins. You can only imagine growing up inside of a silo. This is all (laughs) mind blowing. And while she's looking at this book, the camera pulls back and we are seeing her on this very high resolution screen, much more high resolution than anything they've seen on these cheap computer monitors that they have. These two technicians are watching her and they say, we need to wake them up right now. One of the technicians says, but it's the middle of the night, but it's that important. They're going to have to wake up this person, whoever this person is. And that's where we leave things at the end of this episode. Now, quite a few mysteries. They keep Every episode keeps raising more questions and answering a few of them, but not in a negative way necessarily. Now, key here, you could imagine that these people cannot fathom that there are TV screens at this level of detail. But then I might have to backtrack right now just after saying that because they do have these high resolution images for what's happening outside. So that's a camera that's projecting an image. That is pretty high definition. They can see the stars outside on these giant screens, but maybe still can't fathom having all these screens, basically one per apartment, I would assume, on all these different floors. And is that what's happening inside those janitor's rooms? And who is this person who knows all their movements for the entire day? I can't imagine they're going to introduce a new character at this point. It has to be somebody we know, I would presume. So is it Bernard? The head of IT seems to be a good candidate to be that person. Another giant mystery here, of course, is why are all these people getting murdered? You would assume it's relatively easy to control these people without killing them off. The sheriff obviously has done this himself, but then you figure in this moment of instability, why start killing off all these other people? You lose the second in command, the chief deputy. You lose the mayor, who's very popular. All of these things are only going to cause unrest within the silo. So if these people are intentionally trying to foment a revolution, and by the way, considering that everybody's acts are monitored here in this secondary security world that we are just starting to discover now, then you would assume they would know who has committed these murders if it's not they themselves doing it. And once again, if it is them, why would you do this? You have created a power vacuum which could throw this society into total chaos. Occam's razor, the simplest solution is that this is Bernard and Bernard is now the interim mayor, and he thinks he can become mayor. But if that's the case, I don't really buy that either, because if you're already running the show behind the scenes, if you already are masterminding everything, then why put your neck on the line? Like Why let somebody shove you off (laughs) the edge of the staircase? You could just run everything behind the scenes. Not sure if he is really the right suspect there. So very curious to understand, especially considering that some potentially terrible things have been happening people have been hoarding these artifacts, people are making these discoveries, and there's already all this transparency. I think that is the most fascinating concept potentially here in the show, the idea that you could have some level of autonomy that in a way being constantly surveilled, you can't possibly arrest everybody for every infraction. And then, of course, they'll just turn on you. So you basically have to let them break the law and then just kind of watch them <laughs> until they get too close to something. And then that's when you off them apparently on this show. Although they don't normally have to off them very, kill them off very frequently, since this has happened relatively infrequently within the silo itself. So we will know more next week. I would actually love to dig deeper into some of these ideas, some of these philosophies of control, etc. So I will try to bring more of that into future episodes, but this has already been a marathon recording session because I've been trying to cover so many episodes here. So I'll end it there, but then maybe delve into each one of these individual different philosophical concepts of control and explore them a little more deeply in subsequent episodes. And after this episode, there's only four more episodes to go. So the plot should definitely accelerate. These mysteries should stop being added. And ideally, hopefully, We'll start getting some resolutions on some of these mysteries starting next week. All right. So I will be talking to you soon, discussing the premiere episode of The Idol after its Sunday night premiere. Thanks for listening, everybody.